All right. Please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. So right now we're in between sermon series. We just finished up our series on Ruth uh, last week. Pastor Wilson closed us out on that. And next week we start a new series. This is the series on Jonah. And I think that'll be a great series really looking at uh, our service to God and what it means to actually repent and serve other people. It'll be a great, great sermon series. But now we actually get to to turn to one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, Out of all of the chapters in the Bible, I looked it up. There's 1,189 if you were curious. Um, I didn't know that. But out of all of them, this has to be in the top ten. It's hard to choose a favorite chapter of the Bible, but this comes very, very close. Uh, In this chapter, it deals with the high doctrine of justification and how that interacts with our sanctification. And then it, it grounds all of it in the work of Christ and all from the Old Testament, from one of the weirdest books in the Bible. It's awesome. And I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Let's read the text. Please stand for the reading of God's word if you can. Don't worry, it's short. Chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, For they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on a stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word stands forever. Let us pray. You may be seated. Father, Lord, as we turn to your word today, we ask that you make it come alive to us. We ask that you have the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit be very active among us. That he come convicting us of sin where we need to be convicted and comforting us where we need comfort, Lord. 
It is your glorious word that we turn to, and it is you that we seek to hear from. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, how do we stand before God as sinners? Where do we stand with him? That's the question that we bring to the text today, because this question, it's particularly important for Zechariah and Joshua, who we hear, uh, who we see here, and also one of their other friends named Zerubbabel, who we'll learn about later on in the passage. Um, and it's important because of when Zechariah is writing. Zechariah, he's writing this in 520 uh, BC, and that's important because they've come back from exile. So why were they exiled? The temple was destroyed. They were taken off into Babylon. Why? Well, it's because of their rampant sin and idolatry. It's a judgment on them for that. Indeed, we learn in Ezekiel, um, when Ezekiel is talking about the sin that's going on in the temple, that some of the priests were like meeting in secret cabals and worshiping other gods in the temple. And they had even, in the courtyard of the temple, erected an idol to another god. I mean, it was bad stuff. But then, they're in exile, and they've been in exile for quite a long time. That happened in 586. Cyrus comes in, and he takes over Babylon in 537. And Cyrus the Great, he's an interesting man, if you read up on him. Uh, he is, he was, I guess, a uh, Zoroastrian I think that's how you pronounce that. Uh, he followed Zoroaster. Um, but this is one of the first religions around that had this clear division between good and evil. And so what was taught in this religion is that there were good gods and there were bad gods. And Cyrus wanted to curry the favor of the good gods because he thought under the good gods he could conquer. And so he would eliminate any bad gods he found. And when he took over... Uh, Babylon, he came in and he started interviewing all of these people and learning about their faith and determining whether or not, in his opinion, that God was good or bad, and he came to Yahweh. He came to the God of Israel, and he determined that this was a good God. And trying to curry Yahweh's favor, he sent the people back. He sent the people back into their land so that they could rebuild the temple. And he even funded the temple. And that happened, like I said, in 537. In 536, they go back and they start laying the foundations for the temple, but it's not going to be built for another 20 years. But it's almost done. It's four years away, and the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah. And that question is just ringing through his head, Joshua's head, the entire people's head. How do we stand before God now? We sinned so much, he took us into exile. We worshiped other gods. How do we stand before him? Where do we stand with him? And so, the question is, would God accept them? Yes, they were rebuilding the temple but would God set his presence back in the temple? And those are, those are questions that are similar to ones that we deal with now. You know, we're afflicted with sin, we're afflicted with doubt and disbelief, 
And we have those same questions, particularly in regards to sin. When we sin, we wonder always, where do we stand with God? Has he rejected us? How do we stand before him? And that's the question that we bring to the text today. We're going to look at three different areas and how to, how to kind of answer that question. And we're going to look at how uh, Joshua is cleansed here and cleansed in his justification. And we're going to look at uh, the empowerment that comes from that justification for sanctification. And then finally, we're going to be looking at the peace that God brings between himself and all the people. So cleansed in justification, empowered for sanctification, and peace with God and man. So as we turn to look at justification and the cleansing of Joshua in the text, let's kind of set the stage for, for where we are, what's happening in the vision. The vision starts out, and it's in the eternal throne room of God. And this is not just the throne room of God, but it's also a courtroom. It's a court proceeding. And so Joshua, he stands there, and he's in front of the angel of the Lord. Now, all commentators pretty much see this angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate Jesus. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the messenger of God, the messenger. And so we have Joshua standing before Jesus, and Satan is right there on his right-hand side. And Satan is standing there, and he's ready to accuse Joshua. What's he ready to accuse him of? He's, he's taking this role of the prosecuting attorney. And he's, gonna, he's going to accuse Joshua, well, starting off with his own sins. All the ways that he has messed up throughout, the <clears throat> throughout his life. If you turn to the front of your bulletin, you'll see a quote by Spurgeon here. Uh, I thought this was truly poignant of Spurgeon to draw out. He says, truly, dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of day, will furnish him material for his charges. Yesterday you were impatient, the day before you were proud. Another day you were slothful, on another angry. Oh, what a den of unclean birds the human heart is. If the old accuser wants reasons for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he wills and continue to accuse as long as ever he pleases, for we are altogether an unclean thing. And so when he's bringing accusations against Joshua, he's actually bringing something that's true of Joshua. But he's not just accusing Joshua as a, as a personal thing. You know, as high priest, Joshua represents the people to God. As high priest, one of his duties was to make atonement once a year. And in order to do that, he had to be cleansed of his sin before he went into the Holy of Holies to make that atonement. And here is a generation that is coming back out of Babylon, the land of sin, after a time of great, great sin in which they... They went into exile for it. And Joshua, the most holy person by all rights in the nation, is standing before Jesus with Satan ready to accuse him. And how is he standing there? 
What does the text say? He's standing there in filthy rags. Now, our word filthy, yeah, I mean, you can translate this Hebrew word as filthy, and it does a decent job, but it really doesn't capture the type of filth that it means. When we think of filthy, we think maybe dusty, grimy, dirty. No, this is more like he is caked and coated with sewage. It's that sort of filthy. And that's how he's standing in front of Jesus. The Israelites have sent their best, and yet he's standing in sewage-soaked garments in front of Jesus. And Satan here begins to open his mouth. He begins to open his mouth to accuse Joshua, but he doesn't even get the words out. Let's read in verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? He is met with rebuke. He's cut off. As soon as he starts to speak, as soon as Satan starts to speak, Jesus intercedes and rebukes Satan. No, you will not bring any charge against Joshua. He is a brand plucked from the fire. And you see, many of us, whenever we hear about Judgment Day, whenever we hear about that white throne judgment, we cringe. We don't really know what to do with it because we know we're a sinful people. And, you know, some of that is right to cringe, honestly, because we're told by Jesus that everybody on the face of the earth will be called to account even for the careless words that they utter. And that's a high bar. Because let me tell you, I utter a lot of careless words. Yet, just as Jesus rebukes Satan here when Satan is trying to accuse Joshua, that's the rebuke that, we, that he receives on our behalf. When Satan actually comes sidling up next to us and starts to accuse us, that's the rebuke from Jesus. It's the same rebuke that Joshua experiences there. Satan is not allowed to bring any charge against God's elect because it is God who is justified, who justifies, who is to condemn. And isn't that awesome? You know, we feel our sin, we feel it palpably like it's dripping from our body, like it is the sewage that Joshua is clothed with. And we see that Satan is ready to accuse us. And indeed, he utters those accusations against us and against our conscience all day long. And yet, he is met with a rebuke from Jesus. And then what do we see? If we look at verse 4 and 5, the angel, <clears throat> and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, and to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. And so, He's stripped of these filthy rags, these sewage-soaked these sewage -soaked garments. They're taken away from him. And Jesus actually says to him, this is your iniquity. I've taken it away from you. I have removed it from you. You bear it no more. And then what does he do? He clothes him in pure vestments. And if Jesus says the filthy rags represent his sin, his iniquity... What do the pure vestments 
what do they represent? They represent righteousness, the opposite of his iniquity. They represent that he is clean, he is whole. And importantly, this is a righteousness that is not of his own. It's not his righteousness. His righteousness was taken off him because it was filthy rags before Jesus. Instead, he is given this alien righteousness, this righteousness that is foreign to him. And then, kind of the funniest thing to me at least, uh, every time I read this passage, I kind of laugh. Zechariah, he's sitting here, he's watching all this happen. He's seen uh, Joshua be stripped of his filthy rags and given these pure garments and he just, he can't contain himself, and evidently he's participating in the vision. He's not just a spectator here. He, he yells out, let them put a clean turban on his head. I think that's funny because, you know, what is a turban? It's a turban, it's a hat. And so, like he's saying, put a hat on him. Anyway, I know, I'm weird. I just think that's funny uh, that he's so overcome that, that that's what he goes to. Um, but it's actually pretty awesome that he does get a hat, and that's what Zechariah wants for him, because that turban, what does that represent? If you, if you look back in uh, Leviticus and you see the raiment of the high priest, um, you actually see that one of their garments was a turban. It was a, it was a sign of his office. And anything that was stained was taken from him. And he was given something clean and spotless. Jesus is saying to him, you are able to actually serve as a high priest. You have been cleansed like that. I am empowering you to do that. And this, this, this is justification. And it's a, an amazing picture of it. It's one of the more amazing pictures that we see in Scripture of justification. It's so vivid. Sewage-soaked rags being exchanged for clean, clean garments. And what is true of Joshua as Christians, this is true of us. This is our justification as well. It's a picture not just of what is happening with Joshua, but a picture of what happens to every believer, every believer who in faith turns to, turns to Christ. But this isn't where the vision ends. You know, we continue starting in verse 6. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Jesus, after, after Joshua has been justified, he gives him a charge, and he calls him to obedience. Where's the call to obedience in that? It's when Jesus says that he needs to walk in his ways. He says, I've given you my scripture. I have given you my law. I have told you who I am, what's important to me, my values. Everything I've given you instructs you on how to live Follow what I've said. Follow after me. And incidentally, this actually follows the pattern in like all of Scripture when God saves. God always saves and then gives commands. We see this 
quite clearly whenever we go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, famously, that's, that's where the Ten Commandments are given, the crux of the law. And yet it begins, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He starts off by reminding them that he has already saved them. They are already his people. And because they are his people, because he has saved them, he now gives them instructions on how to live. So, God saves his people. Then he gives them commands. And Jesus says, here, I've saved you, I've cleansed you. I've taken your gar filthy garments away. I've given you pure vestments. Now follow me. Do what I do. He connects his obedience back to the cleansing that he's given him. And this becomes all the more apparent with that connection of the charge and the turban. You know, I said that the turban, that's a sign of his priestly office. And what is the charge? The charge that he is given is to fulfill his high priestly duties. That's what it means when he says, keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. What are his courts? Those are the courts in the temple. And so he's saying that that symbol, that turban, that symbol of his office as high priest, he's been given a clean one. He's sure now that he is able to serve. Jesus has empowered him to actually fulfill his duties. And that's the same thing with us. That's the same thing with Christians now. You know, we are saved by God. And because we're saved by God, we turn and we follow after him. And he provides everything that we need, everything that we need in order to fill our duty here on earth. We walk in his ways. We are obedient because he cleanses us. We do the work that he lays on us because he gives what we need to do it. This is sanctification. Richard, uh, it's Richard Phillips. I actually wrote Dennis on my sheet and it's, it's throwing me off. Richard Phillips in his commentary on Zechariah says this. He says, this is consistent with all that the Bible says about salvation. Joshua is saved by grace and then given commandments he must keep. He is justified and immediately called to begin the life of walking in God's ways that is sanctification. Sproul kind of explaining how this applies to us says this from his book, The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. He says, if regeneration is real, it will always and ever yield faith. If we have a renewed heart, then we always turn to God in faith. If faith is genuine, it will always and ever yield justification. If our justification is authentic, it will always and ever yield sanctification. There can be no true justification without real sanctification. Sanctification is the proof that we have been justified. But notice the order here. Notice what comes first. What comes first is always justification. 
And that's extremely important because, you see, if we reverse this, if we say that uh, our sanctification actually comes first and our justification is based on our sanctification, if we say that our standing is based on our behavior, well, that just leads us back to works, works righteousness. That leads us back to us saving ourselves. No, we love him precisely because he loved us first. Because he gave us his son. Because he saved us. And so that's sanctification, and it's based on our justification. But the, again, the vision doesn't stop there. That would be enough, but it doesn't stop. No, it gives us this grounds for justification, the grounds for our sanctification, and grounds for this peace that we have now with God and with our fellow man. Let's look at verse 8 through 10. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so we see here that Joshua and his friends are a sign. Now, before we ask you know, what the sign is of, which is very, very important. We need to know who his friends are. Now, commentators actually disagree on this. Some say that, you know, this is uh, the priests, like all of the priesthood that Joshua would lead, and some people say this is all of Israel are his friends. But I'm actually persuaded that it's neither of those two because of what the sign is. I'm persuaded that this is spoken to Joshua and his friends are Zechariah himself and Zerubbabel. I mentioned him before. Zerubbabel, he was the governor that was appointed by Cyrus. When they, when they came back into the land, he was the one who was fulfilling the office of the king. Though he was a governor, he was a vassal ruler for, for Cyrus. Now, why these men as a sign? Why do I say that it, it rightly should be interpreted with these men? It's because there are three elements to this sign. We see here that the one coming is a servant. And if we read Isaiah's prophecy, if we, if we read in Ezekiel, we actually see this servant come up quite a lot. And one of the ways that this servant is spoken of is as a prophet. He's the one that is going to lead the people of God. He's the one that's going to speak God's words to them. And so, part of his office is a prophet, which of course matches up with Zechariah because he is the prophet that's speaking here. And so he's fit to be part of this sign, whereas if we just had the priests or the general population of Israel, we wouldn't have someone fit for that part of the sign and then we see the branch. The branch is, again, mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11. It's mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. This branch 
is a branch that's coming from the stump of Jesse. It's coming from David's line. And this branch is the king. The coming Messiah is going to not only be a prophet, the coming Messiah is going to be a king of the line of David, able to rule. And Zerubbabel is of the line of David and is ruling. And the stone, the stone with the seven eyes, this is probably the cornerstone of the temple. It represents the temple itself. And we kind of, we kind of get this priestly image if we, if we go to uh, Revelation and see how it talks about um, Jesus as being the stone with seven eyes. Yeah. I think this quite clearly connects to Joshua himself. So what's the sign? That there is one that's coming. There is the Messiah that's coming. And the Messiah is going to fill all three of these offices. And that's important because all of these offices throughout the history of the Old Testament, what's been the problem, one of the problems at least, it's that these offices have been feuding. The priests rebel against the king. The king does whatever he wants. The prophets don't get along with the priests or the king. They have this feud going on between him. And yet, this sign is coming, showing forth a Messiah, one person who's going to bear all three offices. And when this prophet, this priest, this king comes, he will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. He makes complete atonement of it. Isn't this just a wonderful prophecy about Jesus? Because we see here all of Jesus' offices that he fulfills as the Messiah. And we see quite clearly that it's him. It's him that's going to remove the iniquity of the land. He's going to atone for sins. Joshua's sin here, it's grounded in this. His, sorry, his justification, it's grounded in this. Joshua's sin was taken away, and it was made possible by the work of Jesus, who's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And so, in verse 10, we see that we have peace with God. It says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That represents the peace between the, the three offices. He's talking to the men. He's also talking more broadly to the peace that we have with God as the people of God. And so now do you understand a little bit why I think this is one of the best chapters, why I love this chapter so much? It's this brilliant picture of justification, sanctification, and our peace with God, all welded into one single vision. It's great, and we get the grounds in it for our justification, and then we see that justification itself is the grounds for our sanctification. And what an amazing picture of justification here. That all of our sin has been taken away, as filthy as it is, in the eternal throne room of God, which is also very important because it means that all of our sin has been taken away. Even sin we haven't committed. 
because we are in the eternal throne room of God. And we see the grounds for our justification as, as <clears throat> the grounds for our sanctification in our life as a Christian based in the work that Jesus has already done in us. And better than that, we, we see this prophecy of Jesus, our Messiah. Dear Christian, please pay attention. Pay attention. Do not let this pass you by. No, do not settle for a weak view on what it means to be justified before your Lord. Do not settle for that. You know, what do I mean by that? I, often as Christians, we think about justification just wrongly. You know, <clears throat> we hear now that Jesus took our sin from us and he paid the punishment. But we think, eh, at least in the back of our heads often, that we're still guilty. We think that we were declared guilty in the courtroom and Jesus just took the punishment for us. But no, that's not what justification is. Justification, it's not this legal fiction that happens. It's a real thing. Jesus doesn't even entertain Satan's accusations here. No charge can be brought against God's elect. In being justified, we are declared once and for all not guilty. That is the verdict in the courtroom of God. We are not guilty. Our filthy garments have been taken from us. We often think, yeah, we wear his righteousness. But again, we think in the back of our mind, you know, I could stain these new clothes that I have. These pure vestments that he's given me, I could stain them. But this is Jesus' righteousness. It's his righteous life on earth that we get. It's God's righteousness. You can't stain that righteousness. Donald McLeod says this in his book, A Faith to Live By. It's an amazing book. If you don't have a copy of it, come and see me because I, I will give you my copy. It is life-changing. He says this in his chapter on justification. This righteousness will stand any scrutiny. Omniscience may look at it and find no fault. Infinite holiness may search it and find no blemish. Justice may weigh it and find no shortfall. Conscience may search it and turn it this way and that and look at it from every angle and every place under its own persnickety microscope, and yet pronounce it utterly satisfied. It is absolutely right. And it is right all the time. When our faith languishes, when our prayers labor, when our grace burns low, when we let God and ourselves down, our righteousness remains the same. Our sins and shortcomings can no more undo our righteousness in Christ than our occasional moments of high and... <clears throat> high honor and endeavor can cancel the guilt that we derive from Adam. We are righteous completely, once and for all, as justified today as we ever shall be, even in heaven itself, and as secure in our membership of the household of God as the Son of God is himself. Why? Because we are clothed with his righteousness. Nothing can stain it. Nothing can take it away. 
And that justification, that empowers us for service. That empowers our sanctification. You know, we delude ourselves into thinking, either one, I have to do this on my own power. I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps, just suck it up, and do my duty and obey. Often we think that. Alternately, we can fall into the trap of saying, I can't even live this sanctified life. It's not in me. But the reality is that the more we plunge headlong into this doctrine of justification, the more we make it our own, the more we dwell in what God has done for us, the more sanctified we become. It is inevitable. That is how God set it up. That the more we rest in Him, the more we live for Him. And yet, none of this is your doing. And that is an immense comfort. It's not up to you. Notice, what did Joshua say here? How did he respond to any of this? Silence. He didn't respond at all. He's completely passive as Jesus pronounces his justification. Completely passive. Says nothing isn't said to do anything. Jesus does it for him. He's silent when Jesus calls him to sanctification because Jesus is empowering him to do that as well. He's completely passive in justification, and even though he's called to action in his sanctification, it's not dependent on him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, we're going we're gonna to read these as our confession of faith, question 33 and 35, but I want to draw out here just two things about those questions. The first is about justification, and it, the question is, what is justification? And it starts out, justification is an act of God's free grace. It is something that is done once and for all in the courtroom of God, never to be undone. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism 35 is what is sanctification? It says it is a work of God's free grace. It is something that God does in us. It's not an act. It's not something one and done. It's something that he progressively works in us throughout the rest of our lives. But it is by grace. It's all by grace. So what do we do when we hear Satan accusing us? Because that's going to come. He accuses us night and day, just as we read in our call to worship. He is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them night and day. What do we do? You know, there's, there's this interesting story about Luther, um, you know, kind of the, the leader of the Reformation. And in it, we kind of see how he deals with Satan and his accusations. And I think this is a great model for us. Luther, he wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon on May 24th, 1521, about a spiritual depression that he had experienced, one in which he dreamed that Satan appeared with a scroll on which his many sins were written with care, each of them read out one by one, all the while, Satan mocked his pathetic desire to serve God, assuring him that after all, he would end up in hell. 
Luther writhed in spiritual agony until at last he jumped up and he cried, It is all true, Satan, and many more sins which I have committed in my life which are known to God only. But write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. And then grasping his inkwell from his table, Luther threw it at the devil. And the devil fled because Luther preached the scripture to him. And it left a black mark on the, <clears throat> on the wall of his study in Wittenberg that is still visible to this day. That is how we respond. We model ourselves after Luther here. We hear Jesus' rebuke of Satan, and we rebuke him also. He has no right to bring any charge against us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Lord, it's overwhelming the work that you have done for us. Lord, you are the great Savior. You are the great Redeemer. You are the planner from before time, the one who had to have a family and wanted us in your family. Lord, it's an amazing thing. It's too much, and yet this is what you provide for us. It's overwhelming, and yet you assure us that this is true, that you love us and have before the foundation of the world, that you have claimed us as your own, and nobody can snatch us out of your hand because you are greater than all. Let us rest in that. Let us reflect on our justification daily. Rest in Jesus' finished work. Rest in your promises. And Lord, use that to work in us by grace, our obedience. Make us more and more like your son every day. It is in his name we pray. Amen.